Welcome to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd. I'm a writer, sometime actor, broadcaster, general man about town. I'm here with uh, producer Tomo. Uh, Tomo, tell us a little bit about oh, yourself, he's, he's please. going before me now, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn Natural. and turn about. Sorry, that moaning mini who just <laughs> stuck his oar in there was Chris Budd. You'd think it was his podcast or something. But just for now, it's your turn, Tomo. That's tell us about yourself and how you are. Thank you, David. I'm a financial planner at Ovation Finance, and I'm doing really well today. I'm, I'm in a really good, really good mood today. Uh, recording this on a Friday, and it's date night tonight. So going out. Nice bit of food. Toby's being babysat, so I'm going to get a lie in tomorrow. So, yeah, very excited. Brilliant. I'm very pleased to hear it. Now, you're whinging so and so. Chris Budd. Chris, tell us about yourself. Hello, David. Thank you very much. Um, so, I'm Chris Budd. I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book. Um, I do quite a few other things these days. Uh, one of them uh, is I've talked to financial advisors about using coaching skills because I believe that rather than selling people products and talking about tax and pensions, which are important, but first of all, you should do coaching to help them understand themselves better. One of the principles that's in the book, as it happens. And I've been touring the country over the last few months, um, talking to groups of financial advisors about how, why I think they should use coaching skills. And um, I've been taking along the financial well-being book with me and selling them. So lots of financial advisors have been buying the financial well-being book. Oh, that's great. Have, have they actually been buying it? Have you yeah. Been, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, most of them, because I give them away, but they say, please make a donation to the Penny Brown Cancer Centre, because obviously all the proceeds of the book go to Penny Brown. So if they've had 20 books, I'd say about 15 donations have been made. So there are a few naughty people out there. If you're listening, go and make your donation. You please. know who you are. <laughs> so that's going really well. In fact, one company bought 300 copies of the book to give out to all its staff. Oh, fantastic. Which is really cool. So yeah, very pleased with that. Now, I have a bit of an appeal to make on this podcast, and I interesting little concept that I wonder what you two think about. Mrs B was trained at St Thomas's Hospital and as such that makes her a nightingale, nightingale nurse and she used to have this lovely little badge, uh, the used to have being the clue in this um, it's uh, four wings blue wings around a central circle and it's got her name inscribed on the back. Now unfortunately she lost it or it was stolen a number of years ago and it's always been a source of great sadness to her because she was very proud of being a nightingale. So she's 15 this year, so I thought, wouldn't it be quite cool if I could... I think you'll find she's an unspecified <laughs> age this year, Chris. But uh, it's a significant birthday. I think that's what you meant to say. She's of an age that's got a naught on the end this year. Can we <laughs> go that far? Um, so I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could find a second-hand one of these badges? Now, I've been looking online, and they're about 500 quid to get one of these nightingale badges. But then I realised that each one has got somebody's name on the back. So doesn't it therefore belong to them? I can't quite work out the legal aspect of this. If I would happen to find the one with her name on the back, could I follow up and say, look, I can prove that's not yours because he's got my wife's name on the back. You know, where, where do we stand with that? Well, I suppose in that case you could if you for sure knew that it had been stolen, then, then that would be actionable. But then again, equally, somebody might be needing to raise £500 mm. and would voluntarily sell their badge, in which case I see nothing wrong with that if they choose to sell it to somebody else. It's... Indeed. So uh, and how do you prove that it was stolen rather than sold? I mean, I, I, So I don't think I've got a leg to stand on, but it just seemed a bit odd to me that to be buying back a badge with your own name on the back. Mm. Yeah, well, good luck with that, though. That's a nice thing to think about getting. Well, well, I'm not doing it. 
I can't afford 500 quid. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, let's hope we cut that little bit out of the podcast then. Um, so what's on today's podcast, Chris? We're going to start looking at investments today, David. Do you know what? That is interesting because all the podcasts we've done, this is number 30, blimey, of these, we've done quite a few, uh, we've talked about most aspects of money, but I don't actually recall ever really talking about investments before. We haven't. Um, the reason I think for that is because investing is something that's an outcome of money. It's not something that it's about you, you do in order to get happy, if you see what I mean. And yet... Investing is hugely important as part of finances and making sure that you look after your money in a way that is appropriate to your level of risk, for example, is something we'll look at. We're going to do a series of three podcasts that are looking at the different parts of investments. The last of those will be our old friend Neil Bage is going to come back and talk about risk and uh, investments. In the next podcast, we'll have a talk between us about some of the principles of investing to give people a few tips. However, we're going to start the little series off with an interview with Dr. Daniel Crosby, looking at how we can modify our natural behaviours to improve the chances of investment success. Now, I just reiterate a slight caveat there. We would like to modify our behaviours to make ourselves happier not just to make more money. That's the principle of our podcast. So Daniel Grosby's interview does look at some of those issues. It's not just about how to beat the markets, because that you can't beat the markets. And that's some of the stuff that he comes on to talk about. So it is focused around well-being and happiness, but it's also hopefully will make people's investment journey um, something that they will enjoy. Excellent. Well, before we come on to that, as ever, we need to go back to some of our regular features. Now, we're no longer doing the one about words that make you happy because we've run out of words. We did put out an appeal in the last podcast for some more ideas. They're starting to come in, but we haven't really had enough yet for us to be able to actually nail down a specific feature. Though I did like the one we talked about in the last podcast, which was the excuses for uh, late tax returns. Um, do you think that's something that we could go with human flaws with money? Human flaws. I, I, I'm not sure what what there be a better title for this. With tight ass Tomo, such a great title for a feature. We need to come up with a better title. So maybe we can have a think about that. But yeah, I thought we might be fun to carry on a similar vein, um, given that we're talking about investing, and particularly Dr. Daniel Crosby talked about how to stop ourselves from doing silly things. I thought it might be fun to look at some of the silly things people have said that cost them money. Tomo and I have done some more in-depth research, spending literally minutes on the internet, <laughs> to bring you some stories about jokes that have backfired. Oh, well, I've got an absolute classic one back from, I think it was back in the 1980s, round about that, some guy called Gerard Rat, Gerald Ratner. This, funny enough, that was actually the thing that made me think of this as a section, so <laughs> why don't you tell the story? Well, Gerald Ratner ran a very successful high street jewellers called Ratners. And there were loads of them around the country. There were probably hundreds of them. Every, probably pretty much every town had a Ratner's Jewellers. And you would go in there. And it wasn't high-end, but you could buy decent jewellery in there, watches, all of those sort of things. And he was at a business conference once. And uh, he was asked, I think, something, something like, um, how can you sell these earrings so cheaply? And he said, sort of jokingly, well, it's because they're crap. And this suddenly became headline news. I can remember it was on the front page of the tabloids. Uh, you know, Gerald Ratner, our jewels are crap. And it was absolutely became a massive news story. Within several months, the entire chain of jewellers had gone bust. 
because of one jocular throwaway comment. I also read that in part of that, that talk he gave said their earrings were cheaper than an M&S prawn sandwich but probably wouldn't last this long. <laughs> it was quite a funny line, to be fair. He's still around, Gerard Ratner. I looked him up recently. I think he does talks yeah. on how not to say silly things in business <laughs> conferences. Probably makes quite good, quite good yeah. money out of it. <laughs> We've also got one that's quite relevant to our podcast because one of the five planks of financial well-being is having control of daily finances. What means understanding your spending and uh, trying to keep within your means. We talked about credit cards in the last podcast quite a bit and um, how they actually can be the opposite of well-being. So credit cards are not something to add to well-being if being used to spend above our means. And it turns out the banks who issue the credit cards completely agree with this. Tackled Matt Barrett was chief executive of Barclays when he told a panel of MPs that he advises his children not to pile up debts on credit cards. So even the banks tell you not to use their own products. Uh, so I got a good one from the brand director of Topman from an interview back in 2001. So David Shepherd was asked to clarify the target market for Topman. And he replied, hooligans or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so very few of our customers actually wear suits to work. It'll either be their first interview or court appearance. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about about this is the top man are still there aren't they yeah they're still there and and they didn't actually think it was much of a problem you know they later said the word hooligan not be seen as much of a, an insult to its customers so <laughs> i'm not going to get drawn into commenting on that actually but as you say they're still there it's not done them much harm at all i think the lesson is don't be edgy you know, when you're trying to be cool and edgy and down with the kids as a, as a big businessman, that is not a particularly good idea. <laughs> I know, and sometimes, and I've been guilty of it in the past, and you just say something and you think you're being very funny and then somebody gives you that look as, and you think, oh, I could see how that could be misconstrued. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that. I have that on an almost daily basis, David. <laughs> yeah, I can testify that. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> now, talking about things, rather than talking about things that you wish you hadn't said, let's come on now to pearls of wisdom from our Prince of Parsimony, uh, which is, of course, tight ass Tomo, the man who never knowingly overspends on anything. So the hashtag for this on Twitter is hashtag tight ass Tomo. And it's obviously a way in which you can come up with uh, saving money. Chris, have you got any ideas for this one? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a story, actually, rather than a tip. Um, I had dinner recently with a friend of mine, Steve Brooks. Steve and I, we met when we both were travelling. And uh, when I was 18, he was in his early 20s. And he's always been notoriously tight when it comes to money. He makes Tommy look positively generous. I met with Steve recently uh, for dinner, which I paid for, by the way. And he was telling me how he's really so tight that he will pick up any coin he sees lying on the floor. He's proud of this. No matter how small, no matter where it is, he will take it home and put it in his coin jar. Any coin whatsoever, no matter where it is. So there's Steve in the pub, goes to the loo, goes into the cubicle, and as he's relieving himself, sees one particular 2p coin at the bottom of the toilet. So, finished what he was doing, pulled the flush and retrieved the two p on the bottom of the toilet, took it home and put it in his coin jar. Well, um, that's just sick. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve regaled me with this story with some pride, yeah. I may say. And he managed to persuade you to pay for dinner as well. Yeah. 
I know. All of that just to get a terrible story on the podcast. (laughs) Well, now, we've got a slightly longer interview than usual, so I think we ought to cut the chase. Get straight on to Tomo's tip this week, please. Tomo? Okay, so another one from my friend Alicia Rumbers. How's it going? But I was talking to her and I said, you know what, I, I really don't like change. You know, change in your pocket. I don't like carrying it around. Oh, I thought you meant you like I don't like change. No. <laughs> you mean literally, you don't like Literally, I don't change. like carrying around Unlike change. Unlike your mate Steve, will get changed yeah, from anywhere. Quite the opposite. Um, you two should talk. Actually. I know. Right? And she said, I, well, i got a good tip for you, Tom. Put your change in a jar. Like That's pretty straightforward. But she said, every time you need to take the change out, punish yourself by having to replace it with a note. What so, sort of a note? As so, in a letter? No, well, I should explain. £10 note, £5 note, anything that you have on you. So this, this change jar just builds up because then all of a sudden there is a, a, a penalty for taking it out. And she made 200 quid off it last year. So <laughs> there you go. Well. Pay for a little trip away. I know, but if you need 50p for your, for your lucky meter and you've got to put a fiver in there, well, you're struggling then, aren't you? <laughs> well, I like the way... lucky yeah. meter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Old man story. <laughs> Um, I like the idea you say that she made 200 quid as if there was some business-making thing mm. going on there. Yeah, that's true. Would it be spent on someone else? Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. she could get other people to take some change out and put notes in. That would be a way to make oh, some money, time. wouldn't it? But I suppose what it is, is just a different way of saving. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. it is. It's just Getting into habits. Yeah. Yeah. Getting yourself into good behaviours. Doesn't that bring us nicely on to Dr Daniel Crosby? Well, I think it rather does. So tell us a bit more about him, Chris. Well, we've had people on before to talk about behavioural finance, particularly Greg Davis and Neil Bage, two fascinating chats. Daniel Crosby is a psychologist and behavioural finance expert from America, and he's particularly interested in how our behaviour affects our approach to investing. He's written a few books, and the one that we focus on in this interview is called The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. So let's hear my chat with Dr Daniel Crosby. So, Daniel, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, really enjoyed the laws of wealth um, and reading your book. One of the principles for our book, Financial Wellbeing Book, is all about know thyself. And a lot of people, when it comes to money, they're looking for quick fixes, aren't they? And, and to make investments that will answer everything. I love the way you open your book with the story of the guinea worm. Could you just illustrate that for us? Oh, yeah, I'm from a part of the States that is... Uh shall we say, a little bit put upon. I mean, it's one of the poorer and sort of, uh, it's sort of the poor, least educated parts of the U.S. And so I always uh, take pains to try and feature my part of the world favorably. And so one of the things that I, I open the story with some research that's being done here in my sort of adopted home, hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and it's it's work that's being done to eradicate a huge problem, and it's guinea worms in sub-Saharan Africa. So in the mid-80s, there were three and a half million cases of guinea worms in sub-Saharan Africa, and now it's been totally eradicated. There were less than 100 cases, which is sort of uh, for all intents and purposes functionally eradicated in the most recent year. But what's fascinating to me is that these folks, these researchers from here in Atlanta, eradicated this disease for which there is still no cure. And so what they did is they taught these folks in in Africa a couple of good behaviors, and there's still no pill, there's still no no medicine, no potion you can drink to make guinea worms go away, uh, and yet they've eradicated it by teaching these villagers just uh, two or three really positive behaviors that keep it from spreading. 
And so I analogize that to the world of, uh, of investing, where I say, look, we're sort of plagued with this unmovable cancer of bad behavior. It's not going away. There will never be a magic pill for it. But by just learning sort of two handfuls of good behaviors, we can functionally eradicate it, even if there's no sort of way to snap our fingers and make it go away. Yeah, and that, that, that sets it up beautifully, doesn't it? Um, positive behaviors, things that we can, we can do that help ourselves. Uh, one of our great lines about financial planning is financial planning is very simple. You work out what you want from life and you spend your money on that. <laughs> and it's, it is as simple as that, except, of course, working out what you want from life isn't that easy. <laughs> right. Um, but it's a nice, easy thing for me to say anyway. <laughs> um, so we're trying to pos- promote positive behavior and use money to, to increase happiness. So behaviors, what sort of behaviors uh, can we do that are positive behaviors? You know, I give the example of uh, if someone says, don't think of a pink elephant. You know, of course, the, the very first thing you do is think of a pink elephant. And I look at uh, research from the weight loss industry, which I think has sort of a lot of fascinating parallels with good uh, investing behavior. And again, we find that people who have bad lists of food, if you're thinking, you know, don't eat cookies, don't eat cake all day, well, effectively, you're thinking about cookies and cake all day. (laughs) So, so, you know, uh, people don't respond well to being told what not to do. And in fact, we sort of as a human race, have a very violent reaction to being told not what what not to do. And we sort of say, well, you know, I'll show you, you know, what what I can and can't do. So I'm absolutely on board with sort of the positive psychology approach that you take uh, and and telling people, giving people what to do's instead of what not to do's, I think is a, a powerful but simple shift in frame. One thing I've been looking at quite a bit recently is the idea of control. And how much control we think we have versus how much control we actually have. Is this something that you've looked into at all? Uh, it is. And I was actually having a conversation with, uh, with a friend this morning. And I said that this has been the single largest shift in my worldview as I've studied investment decision making is just understanding that we have less control than we think we do. So uh, when it comes to sort of personal willpower, this is, I think, one of the great traps of trying to be a great investor is that people go, well, if I educate myself, uh, then I'll just know what to do at the right time and I will, I will will myself to do the difficult thing. Well, there's a couple of problems with this. The, one of the biggest problems is under duress, under stress, uh, I cite a study in the book that shows that we lose 13% of our IQ under stress. Some of us don't have an extra 13, <laughs> an extra 13% to play with. So, um, you know, even if we know the right things to do, we're, we're, we're the stupidest when we need to be the smartest. So that's sort of one article of faith. That's sort of one thing you should know. Uh, the second thing that I've learned as I've studied this is just how contextually influenced we are. You know, I, I cite research in the book that shows that liquor stores can manipulate the sales of beer and wine just by the type of music that they pipe in. Uh, when they pipe in German music, the sales of German beer uh, skyrocket by over 50%. When they pipe in French music, the sales of French champagne uh, go up by over 75%. And so if you ask the people that are leaving that liquor store why they made the purchase that they did, not a one of them would point to the context, would point to the environment and say, well, I got suckered in 
you know, I got suckered into buying beer because they were playing this this German music, and yet they 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 see this loss of control in ways that are imperceptible to them, and so uh, we're we're stupid when we need to be smartest, and we're so contextually influenced that I just think we have much less control than we think we have over our lives, and so I think that it's best uh, to to automate things wherever possible and to set in place processes and procedures when you're in a cool emotionless state uh, and let that guide your behavior in the in the scary times uh, i'm sure with your background in education you'll be very um, familiar with something that's quite new to me which is a, an expression called the locus of control oh sure um which i just think is the most fascinating idea that the fact that um an internal locus of control people think that it's all down to them external locus people tend to think that it's all up to other people um, but the real point that I got from that is that the amount of control we think we have is not actually related to whether there's any control to be had or not. Right, right. And so here's where all of this gets a little bit circular and tricky. I mean, there's there's research on locus of control that shows that people who have an internal locus of control, who think you know that the world is more influenceable and they have more power, they make better CEOs, they're happier. I mean, this all makes a lot of sense. Uh, their their companies that they run are more profitable. They make better leaders. But I feel like we need to strike the balance because uh, on the one hand, I think we need in financial markets to have a real respect uh, for the ways that we are contextually influenced and the ways that we are not at our best when when markets are at their worst. I think we need to have a healthy respect for that. Uh, but on the other hand, if you wake up every morning, you know, thinking that you're just adrift at sea. Uh, you know, it's not a very empowered way to live. It's not a very happy way to live. And so I think there's a happy balance to be struck there. And that's why in my book, the very first chapter is called You Control What Matters Most. You know, just trying to send this message to investors that like, look, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of circumstance at play. Uh, but still the best predictor of whether or not you reach your financial goals uh, is the, the choices that you make and the simple behaviors that you lock in. So... This is where we come to this behavior gap that you talk about. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so the behavior gap is the chasm between uh, market returns and, and those that are realized by investors in the market. I like the way the, the gap has already jumped to a chasm. <laughs> oh, it's a chasm. No, we're, uh, I'm prone, prone to hyperbole, if nothing else. So, right, it's no, I call it the behavior chasm. Car Carl Richards and others are a little bit more circumspect than myself. So. <laughs> So, uh, yes, it is more like a chasm, though. I mean, it's it's on the range of uh, 25 to 50 percent. And when you think about those, you know, two, two, four five uh, percentage points that you give up over a lifetime. I mean, it's the difference between uh, potentially doubling your your terminal wealth if you're able to manage it versus uh, not manage it. So it is it is pretty big. So we're, we're trying to encourage people to positive behaviors, but let's just get out perhaps some of the poor behaviors that, that uh, we want to try and avoid. So uh, one of the things that I did in the laws of wealth, I mean, there are, uh, you know, I think 117 by my last count, different ways that you can screw up, <laughs> 117 different ways for you to get it wrong. But you and I are in agreement that that's not a uh, not a very empowering message to send to folks. And so what I tried to do in the book was to frame it in terms of a handful of sort of central tendencies. Um, so, you know, I one of them is ego. 
which is this tendency to maintain, uh, want to maintain feelings of self-worth and competence at the expense of clear-eyed decision-making. So this is sort of overconfidence and the like. Uh, the second one is emotion, which is this tendency for feelings to drive risk perception. Uh, then we've got conservation, which is our tendency to prefer, you know, all else being equal, uh, to prefer sort of things the way that they've always been. And then finally, we've got attention, uh, which is this idea that salience, you know, how vivid something is, trumps how probable it is. You know, the best the best example I can give of this is that I read an article recently uh, that said that more people have died this year taking selfies than in shark attacks. And, and yet, and I wonder yet, if there's a Venn diagram of that. I wonder if there's right, right. selfies of shark attacks. <laughs> and yet, you know, I'm going to the beach next week and I'm terrified. Like, I don't want to get in the water, but I'll probably take some selfies. So one is more vivid than the other. So we perceive it to be more probable. So let's just unpack this a little. Feelings drive risk perception, I think was the phrase you used. Yes, that's Can right. Can you expand on that a little bit? So uh, if you ask someone or, you know, think about you on your best day, you know, you're having a great day. Everything's going nicely. It's the 4th of July. It's your birthday. <laughs> you've been you've been honored by all of your friends. And someone asks you, you know, hey, how, how was your childhood uh, in that good mood? you are likely to recall uh, happy memories, you know, weekends at the shore and ice cream cones and hugs from mom and dad. Uh, on your worst day, you know, everything's gone wrong. You've spilled coffee all over your clothes. It's, you know. my, it's my birthday, my 50th birthday, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's your birthday. You're getting old. Uh, the, the, the endless march of life is staring you in the face. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> Someone asked you, you know, someone asks you on that day how you're doing or how your childhood was rather, and you're likely to recall negative things. So there's something called the, you know, the fancy psych word for this is affect heuristic. And all that it means is the mood that you're in when you're trying to recall information or make a decision has a profound impact on how risky you perceive that to be. And, you know, a gentleman named Howard Marks, a great asset allocator in this uh, here, at Oak Tree Capital refers to what he calls the perversity of risk in financial markets, which is uh, the very fact that when people perceive markets to be least risky is actually when they are most risky. You know, stability actually breeds instability. And so when things look the rosiest and our perceptions of risk are at, at their lowest is actually a good time to be very afraid. So coming back to the first of your 10 rules, number one, you control what matters most. You could argue that that includes whether it's, for example, even to take any risk at all. Yeah, well, in most people, um, you know, I, I argue in another chapter that sort of in our efforts at avoiding risk, we actually take on a, a great deal of risk indeed, uh, you know, because most people uh, are not keeping up with inflation. You know, if inflation is three to four percent a year and you have all of your money in, in cash under your mattress, you know, in one sense, you think you're not taking any risk. But in another sense, you have locked in a three to four percent loss every year, which is very risky indeed. So we tend to have warped perceptions of risk 
uh, that are driven uh, heavily by our emotional states. Well, I mentioned the, uh, the phrase we use, work out what you want from life, spend your money on that. Um, one thing that I confess, I, I try very hard to be agnostic when advising clients. It's not my values, it's theirs, etc., etc. But the one client type that I've always struggled with is the one that's taking risk when they don't actually need to. The one that's got more, as much money to do all the things in life that they ever want to do, and yet they're still taking risk. Right. Well, this goes. I think this goes to chapter chapter six of my book, which is where again we are very much in agreement. And the name of that chapter is "Your Life Is the Best Benchmark." You know, some folks uh, want to take risk to try and beat the market benchmark, uh, to beat the S and P or the FTSE or whatever they're measuring. Um, where you and I agree that that you should take risk. Uh, risk is the probability that you won't be able to live the kind of life that you want to live. So if you're already there, um, you know why continue to take to take excessive market risk? And I think that not only is this a sound principle, I think that that speaking in these terms, speaking with people like you, planners like you can actually help people make better decisions. So I, I cite research in that chapter where people who were required to look at a picture of their children before they made a major financial decision saved more than 200% more than those who did not. And so it's, it's, this very, it's this very act of keeping life, the life that you want, the values that are important to you front and center, has sort of a, a chastening effect on our behavior. So I think that this this idea of personal benchmarking is very powerful. Yeah, that's a great example. I, I also love the um, study you say that uh, people in a community where the average salary is 25000 say that the ideal wage would be 50000 But people who are in a community where the average wage is 100000 they say that they would like to earn 250000 So we're always benchmarking ourselves against people who are around us, aren't we? Mm-hmm, Absolutely. Did I get that right? <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> okay. So uh, rule number five has got a rather a fun title, Daniel. You are not special. Um, you draw a comparison <laughs> in there with love and how we deal with money. <laughs> Could you expand on that a bit for me? Yeah. Um, so you are not special. So um, I, I've done three TEDx talks, which were all a lot of fun. They've... Um, They've gotten each successive talk has been less popular than the, the one previous. So <laughs> I'm, I'm getting worse and worse at it, I guess. But so my first and uh, my first and most popular TEDx talk was called You're Not That Great. And it was basically uh, understanding that an owning of personal mediocrity is actually a great way to live an important and a meaningful life. Because a lot of us, and I think especially in investment markets, uh, go through the world saying, you know, it's not going to happen to me. So we tend to, as people, own the optimistic and delegate the dangerous. Like we think that we will win the lottery, uh, but that other people die of cancer. Uh, and this is just a very dangerous way to to move through the world of, of capital markets. And so what I say here is, look, one of the first, the, the hallmarks of being a great behavioral investor is owning that you are just as emotional, just as flawed, just as stupid, just as fallible as the next person. And when you do that, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. And you can just, uh, you know, go about following the rules and living your life and, and not sort of operating under this uh, fallacious assumption that you're different or better. 
I suspect um, you Americans are looking over the pond at us at our politics and wondering what's going on, and we're doing the same with you at the moment. Um, one of the expressions I've always found fascinating is make America great again. Because it doesn't seem like that really means anything. Great in comparison to what? Oh, you're going to you're going to get me started on this. Um, yeah, no, America is in a horrifying America is in a horrifying place right now. But you see how it appeals to this need for personal specialness. I mean, yeah. it's it's this vague sort of mean nothing slogan that refers. Uh, well, there's there's something called rosy retrospection where the past always looks better than it actually was. So it plays on this, uh, it, it plays on this very human tendency for, for rosy retrospection. Uh, and it doesn't mean much. Uh, and it is actually quite insulting, I think, to certain, uh, certain groups that uh, weren't having such a great time in America, maybe 100 or 150 years ago. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely plays to this psychological tendency to want to be great, uh, combined with this rosy retrospection, uh, which is, you know, you always remember the vacation as being more pleasant than it was. You forget about the crying kids and the food poisoning and <laughs> you remember the best bits and leave the rest behind. And that's true of nations as well. We had a similar approach to our Brexit vote where people were promised that they would regain control if we leave Europe. And that fascinated me. I'm not going to go the whys and wherefores, rights and wrongs of it, but the notion that we gained more control was clearly bogus. The control went from arguably a handful of um, politicians in Brussels to a handful of politicians in London. I won't have any more control once we leave Europe. <laughs> and yet that notion of control was very powerful for people. Well, you know, one of the things that you learn and, you know, tying it back into to capital markets is people prefer a negative certainty to to an uncertainty with a potential positive outcome. Right. People value certainty over just about all else. And that goes to sort of my conservation principle. You know, um, I I'm, I'm working on a new book and I cite a story in this new book about this German town that was along this sort of serpentine snaking river. And it was this ugly, terrible little town, but it sat, it sat on these mineral deposits. Um, and so the, the German government comes to them and says, Hey, we've got some good news and some bad news. You know, the bad news is we're going to tear your town down. Uh, the good news is you're going to have a lot of money to move this town, you know, a mile or two down the road and build it any way you want. It doesn't have to sort of emerge in the same haphazard, slapped-together way uh, that it did originally. And sure enough, the folks built their same ugly little town two miles <laughs> down the road. <laughs> because people, uh, you know, people want certainty, people want control. And so markets are very, markets are very scary to people because even though they tend to go up over long periods of time, uh, you know, there's no, there's no guarantee that they will. And people will give up a lot for a guarantee or this uh, illusion of control for sure. Coming to specifically investments, then we've talked quite a bit about um, investment, but also financial planning. But now just looking at investment for a moment, um, you refer to investing as a zero sum game. And I, I really find this interesting because I'm a economics graduate. Um, and yet, I might just be about to say something really daft, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It always seems to me that every time that somebody makes a profit out of an investment, somebody else is making a loss. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm referring to there. And, you know, I talk in the book about the importance of of having a process, uh, because in a very real sense, every time you make a transaction, whether it's a buy or a sell transaction, there's a counterparty. Right. I mean, there's someone on the other side of that transaction who is, in effect, saying you're you're wrong. You know, uh, there's someone on the other side of that either saying, you know, you're you're selling this when it's actually very nice at this price or or you're buying this where it's a little overvalued. So anytime you make a transaction, I mean, in effect, someone is saying you're wrong. And, And so, I mean, it could be as simple as different time horizons or different needs in the moment. I mean, it doesn't always have to be so dramatic. But, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a humbling thing to think, why might I be wrong uh, and that's, a, I think, a good way to sort of to humble yourself and to go about this uh, in a way that that honors the wisdom of that other that other party. It's amazing how often when you come across people who perhaps run investment clubs or uh, manage their own investment portfolios, they only tell you about the shares that went up, don't they? Yeah, that's uh, people will come to me and say, oh, my neighbor, you know, my neighbor made X on Tesla or, you know, whatever sort of speculative investment. And I go, look, there's a lot more to it than that. People sort of remember sort of people sort of remember the good stuff. It's back to that rosy retrospection. Um, You know, soul crushing losses don't get bandied about at cocktail parties. (laughs) You know, it's a it's a very cherry picked uh, selection that you're getting there. You're not getting the the full detail. And of course, a lot of the. Media, particularly, uh, we had Carl Richards on the podcast a while ago. We talked about um, investment porn, uh, investment entertainment, and all this stuff. Uh, there is a lot of pressure on people. I was thinking, particularly from, from a bit in your book about buying and selling, the short-term nature of our, invest, our approach to, to, to investments. Yeah, so there's a there's a whole part in the book where I talk about this idea called Wall Street Bizarro World. So if you're not a if you're not a comic book fan, you know, there's all these comic book heroes, say Superman, and then there's Bizarro Superman, who is sort of the the mirror image opposite evil version of whatever the superhero is. And and so I talk in the book about how the realities of every day are so diametrically opposed to some of the realities in Wall Street. Because, you know, if I ask you, you know, what are you going to be doing t- 10 minutes from now or, you know, 10 days from now, you'll have a, a relatively sound understanding of what you'll be doing 10 minutes from now and even 10 days from now. But if I say, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now, you could probably not tell me with much certainty. Um, markets operate inversely. Um, you know, if you ask me, what's the market going to do in 10 minutes? I mean, it is a literal coin flip. Uh, but if you say, what is the market going to do 10 years from now? I mean, I could say with, with relative certainty uh, where the market would be 10 years from now. So learning to think in these sort of opposite ways uh, is what makes it so difficult to be an investor and is what makes financial planners so valuable. Well, that is the greatest plug possible to finish on, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm trying to help. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, I obviously would agree. Uh, our book is all about getting a clear path to identifiable objectives, understanding what you want out of life. And these things are intended to stop us from the bad behavior that you describe so well in your book. Yeah, exactly. Daniel, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for joining me. Take care. 
Well, do you know what, Chris? Of all the interviews that we've had, that was right up there for me. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. You're such a lovely chap, David. I think you say that every single time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I enjoy the interviews that you do. But that was particularly interesting. And there's a few things. I like his way of saying, let's try and find... Um, two or three positive behaviours. I thought that was pretty good. And that's a great line. What to do, not what not to do. Yes, that's right. Being, none of us, of course, like being told what not to do. Yeah. And, that's very, and it's very accurate of him to have singled that particular one out. I remember there was a... When we, we had little kids, um, there's a great tip for toddlers. Tom, this is one for you. Tom, who's toddler tip? Maybe that's <laughs> a future. Um, which was when your kid's in the bath and they're having a great time and splashing away, but all the water's going everywhere, you say, don't splash the water. Well, a better thing to say is, how can you keep the water in the bath? It's exactly the same message, but it's positive. That was the thing I thought of when he was talking about what to do, not what not to do. Well, it's interesting. We... The way we talk to Toby, you know, unfortunately, you have to use the word no for their own safety. But actually, no, thank you. And put, try and put a positive spin on it, because you're absolutely right. When you're told not to do something, as Daniel said, it, it, it just automatically puts you back up slightly, doesn't it? And you I, want saw, to um, I saw one comedian who said that it was only at the age of seven that he realised his name wasn't actually careful. <laughs> <laughs> I remember many years ago being in the showers at a swimming pool. I'm Easy. Taking, Easy. I'm, taking, I'm taking a hot shower afterwards after having... <laughs> And there were two kids in there, and they were kind of messing about, throwing water at each other, and they splashed cold water all over me. And I said, do you mind? And they said, no, and carried on. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me, we're getting off piste here a little bit, but what the who? Um, standing on the touchline at rugby, and um, me and a couple of the parents, when George was little and used to do rugby, and he wasn't very good. He doesn't mind me saying that, because he wasn't. But... Me and this other chap, whose son also wasn't very good, used to try and find the things that we could say to our kids to encourage them that meant absolutely nothing. So you would shout things like, well tried! <laughs> <laughs> Bravo! And when he kind of lumbering along behind a kid, and the kid in front would be having the ball and he'd beat 15 people and then score a try. Good support, George, well done. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. And my absolute favourite was another parent who shouted out to his son, Toby, outside! Media, of course, passed left. The kid stopped and looked up and around. Oh, I am outside. What's he talking about? <laughs> We're straying off the point a little bit here. Coming back to the interview, I loved his advice, but actually coming off from what you were just talking about, about our kids, look at a picture of your kids before you make a risky decision, and I just think that's absolutely brilliant. It's like not going shopping when you're hungry, isn't it? Don't go mm. to the supermarket when you're hungry. Similar sort of principle. Yes, and that feeling of also, and I love that notion as well that he mentioned, is, do you know what? You're not that great. <laughs> Don't let your ego get in the way of, mm. uh, of any decisions that you make. I just thought it was very, very insightful. Similarly, the idea of control that we think we can, tr can control things that actually we have no control over at all. Um, I've been doing these coaching talks I mentioned earlier on. Um, I've been doing them with, with Neil Bage, and he's got a great line on this that he uses in his talk, which is, familiarity does not necessarily equal competency. <laughs> which I think is a great line. Mm. I think probably the real standout comment from that whole interview, though, Chris, was when you said, I might be about to say something daft, and I just thought, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> really, really interesting interview. Yeah, Sorry, yeah I was going to say, one thing that I just mentioned, one thing that really stood out for me is that when we're under stress, our IQ reduces by up to 13%. So we make stupid decisions when we need to be at our smartest. And I thought, that's something I'm really going to take away. Mm -hmm. And maybe just uh, take... 
take a breath before you're going to do something if you are in a stressful situation. We've mentioned it many, many times in these podcasts, but the underlying principle to the Financial Wellbeing book, um, to everything that we do, everything we talk about in these podcasts is know thyself. And that's in that's what know that you're going to make a silly decision. In Greg Davis's podcast, he went as far as to say we are almost programmed to make bad decisions about money. And if we know these things, we've got a better chance, haven't we? The big line that I really like about Dr. Daniel Crosby's stuff: "Your life is the best benchmark." So benchmarking, trying to work out how much investment performance you can get, how much your money can grow by, all this kind of stuff. Actually, your life is the best thing to measure your money against. Yeah, and having said in the previous podcast that I don't really tend to read very many of these sort of self-improvement, life-changing books, I have to say The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success by Dr. Daniel Crosby is one that I may well be going out and buying. Can I just, um, we talk about financial well-being, we mentioned the book in passing, but if anybody actually wants to go and buy a copy of the financial well-being book, I wonder if you could go to the Penny Brown website, so that's B-R-O-H-N, Penny Brown, Google it, type in Penny Brown Financial Wellbeing. If you get the book directly from their website, it maximises the amount of money that they make. Excellent. And do you know how much money that book of sales of that book have now raised for Penny Brown? Well, through our Just Giving account, uh, by people taking copies and then um, putting a donation in, plus uh, all the royalties that we then paid in, it's about £6,500, plus there's whatever they have sold themselves, which I think is another 100 or so copies. Fantastic. So remember, every time you do buy a book or make a donation, all that work is going to support the great work that Penny Brown do to support people with cancer. And we are going to have them on in a future podcast to tell us a bit more about that can't wait okay as ever it's been a real pleasure that's enough from all of us we'll see you next time for another financial well-being podcast if you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts make sure you click the subscribe button for more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the financial well-being book please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. You don't have to talk all night. I'm a man who can't say no. You don't have to twist my arm. Just point me where you want to go. Take me to the action. Take me to the track. Take me to the party if they're betting in the back. I've been working all my life. Can't afford to wait. Let me call my wife so I can tell her I'll be late. (laughs) 